We are better off out. And, you know, if it wasn't the vaccine rollout, and if it wasn't trade deals being signed all over the world and new ones with Australia and, 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 and lots in the pipeline, now it's this investment. I think we're beginning to understand why now 70% of the country think Brexit's the right thing to do. I just, you know, the caveat is... Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast, where Nigel Farage and Nikolai Hubble give you a unique take on what's really going on in the world of finance, investing and politics. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to This Week in Review with Nigel Farage. Nigel, we've got a whole bunch of topics this week, but I thought we should start with the Brexit-themed topic of the Nissan factory in Sunderland, because I'm sure you're on to all of the the topics around that and all about the Brexit implications. So take it away. Sunderland is etched in my memory. I mean, there we were, you know, for me, the end of a 25-year campaign, the polls had closed, feeling a bit glum, to be honest, just assuming, well, you know, we've come close, but we probably haven't quite done it. Uh, And then... And then suddenly, I, the returning officer for Sunderland, declare the votes as follows. Remain 58,000, leave 83,000. Wow. And we thought we can do this. So Sunderland is etched in my memory uh, for the rest of my life. And of course, that's because Nissan had been a central part of the whole Brexit debate with the Remainers, Ramonas, telling us 20 years ago, If we didn't join the euro, Nissan would leave. Telling us if we dared to vote for Brexit, Nissan would leave. I mean, Nissan was the one that was used time and again. And here we are, outside of EU rules, actually able to attract more investment into the UK, not less. And that point was made today by Nissan's chief executive. He said, this is a benefit of Brexit. This investment in the battery plant, six and a half thousand new jobs, It's great news for Brexit Britain. Now, to be realistic, the Germans are even further ahead in terms of battery production, but this is a great start. Uh, And I think now that it's happened at Nissan, there's reason to be optimistic that we'll see it coming at other car manufacturers too. We are better off out. And, you know, if it wasn't the vaccine rollout and if it wasn't trade deals being signed all over the world and new ones with Australia and, 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 and lots in the pipeline. Now it's this investment. I think we're beginning to understand why now 70% of the country think Brexit's the right thing to do. I just, you know, the caveat is that obviously the Northern Ireland thing is a complete mess. Uh, fisheries isn't great. Uh, but on the big, broader aspects of our economy, we're in great shape, provided we have a government with the nous and the initiative to take the advantage. Maybe it's reasonable to expect that the politicians would somehow find a way to muck up some part of the Brexit process. So, and, and for many years, of course, they mucked it up very badly. So I suppose maybe we shouldn't complain too much about this Brexit deal. One of the particular parts that interested me was that under the deal, a certain percent of each car has to be manufactured inside the UK or EU in order for it to be freely traded. That's my understanding, at least. And it looks yeah. like that could actually increase the amount of investment into Britain because it in the battery example, it ensures that the battery must be manufactured inside the EU or UK as well, because that's such a big part of the EV car. So we could end up with a bit of a boom in, in uh, I guess, this, this trade through Britain into the EU of cars. Yes, and that's exactly the point that the Nissan boss was making this morning, uh, that actually the reshaping of the rules gives us a slight advantage in this area. So yeah, we've lost bits on fish, we've lost bits elsewhere, uh, but in, you know, in this giant 
giant industry of car. And now, of course, with the move towards electric, whatever you think of that. Uh, but I mean, you know, what is an electric car? Well, it's basically a body with a blooming great big battery. I mean, that's really what it is. So, so there's a great danger uh, that many of the component makers could suffer, but battery production could be a very good replacement. So, yeah, I think there's every, every reason to think that this is the first of many such proposals. Let's move on to some concerning news, this Delta variant. What do you make of it? And do you think it's going to be a threat to the financial and economic side of things as well? 300,000 kids sent home from school. 300,000 kids, because someone somewhere tests positive for COVID. We're testing a million people a day. And yesterday, 26,000 people tested positive. It looks like a huge number. You think, gosh, are we back to the bad old days of January? Uh, no. We're not, and why? Hospitalization numbers are still very, very low indeed. Deaths, well, some days it's seven or eight, some days it's 18, but, but I mean, you know, we're talking about fewer deaths a day than suicide, and some days fewer deaths than road traffic accidents. You know, this Delta variant has been around for a few weeks now. If it really was gonna pose a problem, it would have done so already. The truth of it is most kids, who are testing positive are completely asymptomatic. Uh, the odd one gets a sniffle. And amongst those that have been double vaccinated, i.e. the older population, again, in the vast, vast majority of cases, you know, the symptoms are pretty negligible. And, you know, I was looking at the Office of National Statistics figures for deaths in the UK, registered deaths in the UK last week, and it's a very accurate figure to look at. And less than 1% of all the deaths last week had any attachment to COVID at all. And we are now pursuing a continued form of lockdown. Uh, a, I mean, you know, a third of a million kids being sent home from school is a form of lockdown because of the impositions it puts on their parents and grandparents and everybody else. Um, and frankly, I've now reached the conclusion that it is wholly unnecessary. Uh, it is all based on modeling, modeling that even into this stage of a Delta variant has proved to be completely and utterly wrong. You know, the same fear mongers that told us that mad cow disease were kind of swaying through the population. It's the same people doing it. You know, this Professor Ferguson bloke. Um, uh, the only note of joy is that Hancock's gone, uh, which I am pleased about, uh, because I think, I think he's been perfectly awful through it all. But what we're really doing here is we gave ourselves, through a great vaccine rollout, a fantastic time advantage over our competitors. And I'm gonna view Europe in future as competitors because that's actually in economic terms what they are. And we are now squandering that great advantage. And I have to tell you, it makes me very, very angry indeed. So it sounds like you're suggesting we should be similar to Singapore where at this point we've got to learn to live with it and this whole lockdown thing is maybe apart yeah. from some extreme circumstances just johnson said we've got to learn to live with the virus what johnson meant was we've got to learn to live with lockdown what singapore have said quite clearly is this ain't going away so in future we'll treat it like flu we must learn to live with this virus and i saw this in florida i saw this in texas yeah you know things like hand sanitizer which weren't even part of our lives, will now be part of our lives. And I do wonder whether 
One of the reasons common colds were fewer this year, flu was, 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 was less this year, wasn't just reduced social mixing, but it was actually we've started washing our hands and doing things that maybe we should have been doing before. You know, your mum always told you, didn't you? You know, you, you came in from playing soccer with your mates or you came in from the garden. Your mum always told you, you wash your hands before you have your tea, you know, and, and but, but kind of, we never really thought much, did we, about, I mean, I did because leading UKIP and the Brexit party, you know, I go to a big event and shake 200 hands. Um, and it was Donald Trump, in fact, that first put me onto this. I, I was with Trump and he'd just done a big photo lineup. It's back in 16. And one of his assistants got the hand sanitizer out. And Trump said to me, Nigel, you should always do this. You never know where their hands have been. <laughs> but, but actually, actually, and after that, I did do it. Um, and so I do think that incidences of common cold and flu and all these things will be less because of that cultural change. And, it's, and, and that's not an imposition because you just don't notice it, do you? You walk into a restaurant, whatever, you know, there's, 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 there's the hand sanitizer there on the door. Um, yeah, we've got to learn to live with this and we need some political leadership in this country uh, that doesn't hide behind the skirts of some of these mad scientists. The story of the doctor who first suggested that surgeons should be washing their hands and doctors should be washing their hands between each patient is an extraordinary story where the medical establishment tried to shut him up, tried to keep him quiet, and he insisted that you know, the rate of deaths was down to the fact that they were not washing their hands between, between surgeries and between patients. So there's <coughs> something to learn in that and maybe it'll repeat itself. You mentioned Sajid Javid, the new health secretary. We have some experience with him, so I think we might be able to come up with some ideas of how he's going to perform as health secretary. So what do you make of what is going to happen under well, his stewardship? One school of thought is that he's wonderfully experienced because he's been in seven different government departments. And that's a great thing. Another school of thought, which is my line of thought, is he's so hopeless, they keep shunting him onto the next department because he isn't any blooming good. Um, you can believe Dominic Cummings if you want to. Uh, deeply unpleasant individual, but one or two of the comments he's making about the government and its failings, I've no doubt have a ring of truth to it. Um, I, you know, I felt that uh, as chancellor, uh, you know, he wasn't able to impose his will um, and, and finished up going, uh, all to do with some of his staff. I don't see, I hope I'm wrong, but I don't see a huge, strong personality. And, you know, the Daily Mail saying, oh, isn't it wonderful? You know, Sajid's gonna free us all. He's a libertarian, it's gonna be great. He understands that lockdown's gone on or semi-lockdown's gone on for far too long. You know, the sun, let's jab it, you know, and they're all talking him up. Well, look, you know, he's not the Eeyore type that Hancock was, that perhaps is true on this, um, but I, I don't see, I don't see any way in which he will ultimately influence the big decisions. And of course, you know, the country is led by um, Carrie, sorry, Boris Johnson. Um, and, and that's where the big decisions are getting made. Mr. and Mrs. Johnson are running the country. So let's hope, let's hope that when he says we've got to learn to live with the virus, he means it in a way that Singapore does and not Boris Johnson. But I think the truth of it is the jury's out. Let's move on to this global housing boom. It's all so familiar to me. House prices are spiraling out of control in all of the usual places. This time it's a bit more international, but still it is so familiar to 2003 to 2006. Are you getting worried about the housing bubble and what comes after a bubble? 
Well, of course, today's July the 1st, so you know, much of that stamp duty relief has gone overnight, but that's not going to make a difference. Um, look, you know, we believe in markets, Nick, and we believe in demand and supply. So just get your heads around this, right? Since 2000, the British population has increased by 8 million. That's what we thought. But now we learn there aren't 3 million EU citizens living in the UK. So far, 5.6 million have registered for settled status. And there's now a hue and cry, oh, we can't have a cutoff date. I mean, it's as if, you know, listening to some of these politicians, you know, they'd like 5 million more to come. Um, I have no doubt. I have absolutely no doubt that our genuine population is well over 70 million. And if you think about that as a rate of growth since 2000 and that house building averages 170, 180,000 a year, you can see why there is a massive demand supply problem. And that's even before, you know, Chinese backed Hong Kong consortiums buy up apartment blocks for investment or whatever else it may be. We have an exploding population. We have a population crisis. I don't doubt that uh, the housing market will get to a ridiculous level. Um, uh, and, and there is a great danger in that. But, but, but I, think, I think what you'll see are the high end of the property markets at some point will have a dramatic reversal. The lower ends are not gonna fall too much because of that simple demand supply equation. But there is a danger, there is a danger for medium or high priced housing. And, and, and of course, a lot of this will depend on interest rates. You know, we've been living through an era of free money. And the best example of this is, is really Ireland. You know, you know, Ireland joined the euro. They had an interest rate that was half what it should be. A dramatic property speculative boom. And then a collapse of just the most extraordinary proportions where you literally couldn't give property away at one point. So, yeah, I do think there are dangers. I think there are dangers all over the West in an overheating housing market. But I do emphasize that with Britain, that demand supply factor means the bottom end ain't going to fall too far. So what about that international idea of another financial crisis as a result of the housing bubble? And even at some point, where I guess our theory about inflation is, is likely yeah. to play out, necessitating higher interest rates, and whether if they tighten too much too fast, as they did in 2007, whether that triggers another 2008-style crisis. My sense of it is that whilst interest rates will go up, they won't tighten too far too fast. They're too scared of the effect it would have on the economy. And I think, because I'm a cynic, I actually think that no matter what the Fed says or the Bank of England says about inflation, oh, it's all going to be fine. It'll just settle at 3%. It'll be no problem. You know, as you and I have discussed before, inflation is a, disease, is, is a disease of money caused by government. It's quite easy to start, but it's not that easy to stop. And I cynically believe that the central banks and governments want inflation because it's the only way they're going to get their way out of the vast sums of money they've borrowed. So I don't think we're going to see massive spikes in interest rates, increases, yes, but not massive spikes for those two reasons. Nigel, I'm shocked to hear that you're a cynic. Thanks very much for joining us at home. Nick, I have been inside uh, the European institutions uh, for 20 years. I've observed the British institutions for 40 years. Um, and I tell you what, there's much to be cynical about. And, and I'll finish with this note, if I may. You know, now we learn today that one of Hancock's junior ministers had 27 meetings, 27 
unregistered, undeclared meetings with private healthcare providers. We know that Matt Hancock's publican got a massive PPE order. There is something very rotten at the heart of this government, and it's going to come out in the next few months. You mark my words. Thank <laughs> you.